thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. On today's podcast, we're going to start on the question of how do we live in such a way How do we build on the foundation that God has laid in Jesus Christ in such a way as to not have our work at the end of our lives on the final day of judgment burned up? If you'll recall in our series on foundations, we spoke about the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul says, No man can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain that we we build on that foundation if we build it all, with different kinds of materials. And it's not the quality of the material so much that is important, as God gives each of us different gifts, talents, abilities, callings, um, interests, as it is how we build. And the question that was posed then as we sought to lay the foundation was ultimately to get to this question of, well, then how do we build? So we've tried to lay some foundations over the last several weeks, and now we're going to turn to the question of building and building rightly. And you may recall that last week uh, I covered the testimony offered by a Christian policy expert in support of a bill prohibiting biological males from competing against biological women in college sports. And you got my thoughts then, and if you didn't listen to it, let me encourage you to go back and listen. I think it's a very informative podcast. You heard my thoughts on how the argument that was made there will be burned up in the end because it proceeded on the basis of the same worldview, the same understanding of the human person that those who deny the existence of God have. It rests on the same frame as that on which the transgender movement is built. And so the success of that bill in the last legislative session will not long endure. That's my prediction. And if you're interested, you can read my uh, commentary from this uh, week on that same subject. Now, if we are going to build, we need to know what we're building. And we need to know how to get there. How do we get it done? And it's for that reason I want to set the next few weeks in the context of this statement made by Abraham Kuyper to the seminary students at Princeton University in 1898. Now Kuyper, you may recall, was a theologian. He had founded a university, a seminary where he taught, founded a newspaper, Uh, He founded a political party. He became the prime minister of the Netherlands and uh, quite a renaissance man. And this is what he said to those students, those leaders of the Christian church for the coming century. Quote, In the Roman Catholic Church, everybody knows what he lives for because with clear consciousness he enjoys the fruits of Rome's unity of life system. Referring there to the fact that Everything at the time was seen as as coming under the Catholic Church, and if it was not under the auspices of the Catholic Church, then it was outside of God, outside of Christendom, and uh, was uh, was bad, wrong, uh, needed to be redeemed, whatever it might be. There was no independence of life, in a sense, 
outside of the auspices of the Catholic Church. He goes on and then says, even in Islam you find the same power of a conviction of life dominated by one principle. And then he makes this statement that's the one I want to uh, land on for today. Protestantism alone wanders about in the wilderness without aim or direction, moving hither and thither without making any progress. Now, you may recall, if you've been a longtime listener to God, Law, and Liberty, that I've spoken about this in the context of law. And I've quoted Harold Berman's book, Law and Revolution, in which he states that uh, Christianity has made no real contribution to the law since the Puritans of the 1700s, the late 1600s and early 1700s here in America. And so, at least in the law, Berman would be saying, yeah, we've, we've, we've just kind of wandered around. We've not gone anywhere. We've not built or contributed to anything. And Kuiper then continues, and why did we, Christians, stand so weak in the face of modernism, which he has defined as essentially a turning from God is our central, foundational, integrating, interpretive principle. Why did we constantly lose ground? Now before I give you Kuiper's answer, let me ask this. Do Kuiper's questions reflect a wrong assessment of the situation? Did he see his present times incorrectly as, as one of Christian weakness and losing ground? Uh, I suspect many Christians today would think of the late 1800s prior to World War I as great by comparison to how Christianity is perceived today in our culture and the influence that it has on culture. But he was correct for reasons most did not then appreciate and some of which we will consider in coming episodes. But for sure, Christianity has lost considerable cultural ground since then. It doesn't mean that there was not cultural progress. It was not cultural progress from a Christian perspective of an increasing influence of biblical truth and values. Now, with respect to this losing trend in law, I want to play for you today this clip of my friend Jeff Schaefer, who is being interviewed on the Fight Love Feast Network, the podcast known as Cross Politic. And he's going to here over the next five minutes, so, so just bear with it, take us from the 1960s to the present day and the cultural trend that was taking place in the law and, as you'll hear at the end of the clip, the question being to him, where was Protestantism during all of this period? His answer will be um, perhaps shocking, certainly disappointing. So let's listen. The 60s were important in a number of respects, um, culturally, but also in the law. One of those developments was the ratification of the idea that um, married couples have the right to sterile sex. So that was in 1965, the Griswold decision. Whoa. Have the right to sterile sex. Okay. There had been, and this may surprise your viewers, um, a long legal history where contraception was prohibited. 
Um, so the Supreme Court at that time determined, although in the name of the, the sanctity of the marital home, that those sorts of prohibitions could not be extended into um, the decisions made by husband and wife. It wasn't but a few years later in 1972 in the Eisenstadt case that the Supreme Court said, um, what we said about the sanctity of the marital home doesn't really matter. There is no difference between sex between persons in a marital relationship and outside of it. So this right to access contraception, to make the decision where to bear, whether to bear or beget a child, goes to individuals. Um, wow. So we have now this kind of a more fully instantiated right to sterile sex. So, so, so pause there. Um, un, I think you need to unpack that for us. Yeah. What, what was the Griswold decision? Yeah, well, we, that was, that on, was the first. No, no, but, but yeah, that. Yeah. But also, so, but what's the significance of the court ruling that, that, that people have a right, married couples have a right to sterile sex? Yeah, you know, one, there are a number of aspects that we could say are important about that, but this was the first decision that emerged from this purported right to privacy. Mm. Okay. So okay. There, there is obviously no such thing in the Constitution as a right to privacy. However, the court determined that because certain elements of the, the Bill of Rights speak in terms of what arguably could be characterized as privacy. No illegal search and seizures. Exactly. Okay. No housing of forced housing of soldiers in your home, right? This kind yeah. of thing. Okay, um, that uh, I don't know how far to go into. No, this. Go, no, 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 go, go, go. Got it. Peculiar um, description, but it's the um, emanations and penumbras. It's describing the yep. Bill of Rights almost as a moon that's giving off of light, and and the shadow that runs around the exterior of right. the moon's light is where we're finding these right. rights and mm. privacy, which included in the 1965 Griswold case a right to marital immunity against the laws um, against uh, contraception. Yeah. I, I guess I, I want to know exa- what do you, what was the Griswold case? Why was it there? And what was it like in plain terms? What was it deciding? It was an action brought um, in order to overrule the Connecticut law that um, had its impact on the access of contraception by marital couples. So the Connecticut law had made contraception illegal for everyone. Because it was saying, hey, marriage is for procreation, and contraceptives are legal. And then the Supreme Court case came in and said, Connecticut, you can't do that. That's right. So we left off in the 1960s. Actually, we got got to 72. 72. And you were mentioning this is when they're first starting to find this, these penumbra in the the Constitution, these shadows. Spirit. It's not there, but they're arguing is in some way kind of implied or implicit in the text of the Constitution. And that, I mean, does that bring us to Roe versus Wade? It does. You know, when the court issued its opinion in the Eisenstadt case, it was already had Roe in its hands. Wow. So it was a setup. There was language that was included wow. in Eisenstadt intentionally to be used for purposes of the decision to come in the Roe they, case. They gave themselves precedent. They did. You shut up. <laughs> This isn't a controversial statement. It's well understood. Wow. So nineteen seventy two. So you're saying the nineteen seventy two sanctity Wait. of marriage case, they they already had the Roe case in hand. In hand. Seventy two was Eisenstadt. That Eisenstadt, that was Eisenstadt not the marriage case. Yeah. This was sex among unmarried persons. Right. By that by, by that point they were saying it's now up to individuals whether they're gonna have children or not. Mm-hmm. So they've so they've divorced that from family. And then Roe comes, they, they set themselves up, right to privacy, so-called. That's a p- 
penumbra in the Bill of Rights. Um, connect the dots. They go from Ro- but Roe versus Wade goes even further. It does. If your uh, contraceptive efforts fail, then you do away with the problem. Mm-hmm. So Roe ratified the idea that there's a constitutional right to abortion, to getting rid of your child. Right. And that was obviously a fairly substantial leap from the contraceptive cases, but there was a kind of, we might say, philosophical approach that was consistent between them. What is that philosophical approach that's consistent? Sex is constitutionally sterile. And any identification of something other than that is a problem that needs to be done away with. Understand, as far as the law is concerned, the court is saying, and, and by the way, I suppose I should pause here before I conclude that and say, by this time, the Supreme Court has well established itself as essentially the um, superintending committee as to how to enable, in, in the law, the sexual revolution. Wow. And so this is being carried out step by step. But the road determination was a brutal conclusion of the idea that sex is and must be sterile okay. um go back to the eisenstat i might be pronouncing it wrong um I'm sure but are you saying in the eisenstat case it basically made um uh sex outside of marriage legal is that basically what it's doing it's that's the implication i mean when you're giving a constitutional right to unmarried persons to be using contraception in their sexual acts Right. It, it wasn't a ruling on the question that you presented, but it certainly was implied. Because other states, um, didn't states largely outlaw premarital sex or sex outside of marriage? Fornication laws were in existence across the nation at the time. Okay. Yeah. And then the Eisenstadt case was, it was had to do with contraception, but obviously the foundation of that case was more, hey, you can just have sex with, you know, outside of marriage. Well, again, that's an implication right, rather right. than a direct ruling right. from the court. So this this idea that sex is le- legally, at least, uh, to be understood as a sterile thing, is already um, at war with creation. It is God's word. It, yeah. It's at war with what God, how God made the world, and it's at the heart of homosexuality. Yeah. Right. Right. And it, and and so I guess, and that's what I'm asking is 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 that a, an if you if you say that have you essentially already defined sexuality in kind of a gay way yeah yes. i mean it's, it's it's already it's already a gay paradigm that's right so when we get to the lawrence decision when the supreme court said that there was a constitutional right to homosexual sodomy which is when when 2003 okay in it there had been the work done already right. to get us to that right. point so right. Um, if there, if sex between two persons does not need to create a, another human being, does it not need to be fruitful, then the difference between heterosexual sex and sodomite sex is apparently superfluous. So, Jeff, help me out with something. If it's true that they are setting up Roe v. Wade and they're basically trying to obliterate categories of sex here and what it is and that's what the secularists are doing are we were we seeing the plays as it was happening in that time what what are we doing while all this is happening to the court where are christians at what's the where's the world at what are we reacting to i'm just wondering because they're they're getting some traction here man what what was our play in the time in the moment 
Uh, there wasn't one. The Catholics were in play at the moment. The evangelicals were not. In um, the early 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention had promoted abortion as a constitutional oh. right. It repented of that in, yes. I think, 2003. But the point is, th- there wasn't action from our community at the time. Now, <laughs> having just heard that, let's go back to Kuiper's last statement about why was Christianity so weak? Why did we constantly lose ground? Why might Kuiper have said that? Why might his perception regarding the state of Protestantism and its declining cultural posture have persisted to the present day, to the point that our culture, even here in the so-called Bible Belt, no longer knows what it means to be human, which is what I covered in last week's episode with some of the comments by Jeff Schaefer and the response of Christian organizations in regard to the transgender issue. So to that question, let me continue with this ongoing quote from Kuiper. This is why he said that we lost ground, why we were weak. He says, quote, because we were devoid of an equal unity of life conception, such as alone could enable us with irresistible energy to repel the enemy at the frontier. Now, what is he saying, an equal unity of life conception? He's referring to what he had described as modernism, which we would refer to today as the world without God, the world of autonomous man. He said they constructed a worldview without God from the data of the universe created, understood, and interpreted by autonomous man. We talked about that again last week in the episode where we said when, when, when all we have is autonomous man, all we are is whatever can be empirically measured. We're going to come back to this notion again of the autonomous man and how we need to be building later. But, but that's what Kuiper is saying. He said, we were devoid of an equal, one that corresponded in every point to the unity of life conception that was necessary to repel the onslaught of the other worldview. And then he continues, this unity of life conception, however, is never to be found in a vague conception of Protestantism, winding itself as it does in all kinds of tortuosities. Without this unity of starting point in life system, we must lose the power to maintain our independent position, our position in culture is what he's saying, and our strength for resistance must ebb away. Now, let me, let me just repeat that without me interrupting myself so that you can hear the whole thing put together. He says, the reason there was this weakness and this decline is because we were devoid of an equal unity of life conception such as alone could enable us with irresistible energy to repel the enemy at the frontier. This unity of life conception, however, is never to be found in a vague conception of Protestantism, winding itself as it does in all kinds of tortuosities. Without this unity of starting point in life system, we must lose the power to maintain our independent position and our strength resistance must ebb 
away. So we come to the question, what is this unity of life conception we need to compete, to build, as you might say, or at least put up a, a defense or a fortress against the prevailing tides of an atheistic, modernist, autonomous man, world, and life view? And it's easy to say God. But if that is the answer, then what about the God we believe in or we preach and we've been believing in and preaching since 1898 has almost guaranteed to put us on the losing side. You know, if, if you're finding that what you're talking about, what you're believing in and who you're proclaiming is destined to lose, then perhaps, perhaps we need to rethink what it is that we're preaching and proclaiming. But maybe, maybe the first question we should ask is whether it even matters that we compete. After all, there are a lot of people that specifically in the public square and in politics or in the arts or media or whatever, they say, well, we just don't need to compete. We just, we just need to retreat. We need to, you know, find a safe place for us to all live. This is not about us competing with those pagans out there, right? But if we are going to compete, what are we competing for? What are we trying to win if we compete? You, you see, those questions go back the observation by Kuiper made at the top of the show. If you don't know, you'll just wander around. And at the end of your days, you're going to look back and say, well, what did I accomplish? And you may look back at the final judgment and whatever it was you thought you had accomplished, you find it being burned up. Even if, as Paul says, you're saved. Now, these are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And I really hope you'll join me. And I hope you'll share this podcast uh, with, with your friends. But I want to close today on a positive note with this question. How should we as Christians view our times? For an answer to that, I loved what Jason Farley, a former pastor who is now the COO of Lure, L-O-O-R, TV, uh, trying to create a platform for Christian artists to create uh, stories and uh, movies with a Christian worldview. And it was said in one of my favorite podcasts called Chalk Knox Unplugged. I've mentioned it before. Chalk is the abbreviation for chocolate. Knox is K-N-O-X. That's uh, broadcast on the Fight Love Feast Network. So let's listen in to what Jason has to say. In a lot of ways, it's a it's a, an opportunity, right? That we should be looking at and saying, like, "Oh, wait, okay." So God has put us right here in this moment. Um, how do we how do we build, right? So God has raised much of Western civilization. How do we build, right? We so too many Christians are thinking like, "Oh no, we got to retreat," right? But a fl we got flat ground it's time to start building the thing is what we don't know we what we don't know how to do is pour concrete we don't know what is the foundation of society we don't know what is what goes what goes at the base of it all well there we go i think quite accurately he has said god has raised as in leveled western civilization when you don't any longer even know what it means to be human, when you're not even searching 
for the metaphysical understandings, the, the understandings of life that, that go beyond mere empirically measured data. When, when, when you're not even as interested in those questions as the pagan Greeks were, then Western civilization has been flattened. And we've got, as he said, level ground. And it's time to start building on the foundation we've laid. So join me next week as we start that process. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.